dealing with the idea of trying to find spirituality in the mundane, even in the crass, and the interrelationship and also the intersection of nature and supernature. And when I explore it a little bit further in the Ramchal, in the Sister Shoim, and really the, the nature of um, the Ramchal explicitly relates to the first stage of what we'd call real spirituality is in the middle of, of Zrizus. And I'd like to go a bit further with that. Um, so, mm, there's an interesting paragraph at the end of the sixth chapter of um, Sister Sharon. What we began by accentuating was that spirituality is not um, is not accessible in the Jewish framework only to a person that isolates himself and distances himself from the normal nitty gritty experience of life, but in fact, on the contrary by engaging in the normal nitty-gritty of the mundane nature of my life, that's how I experience spirituality. And there's two stages to that. The one is finding underneath the surface of my life the ever-present energy and being of Hashem, which requires contemplation. And then there's a graduation process. Once a person has internalized that nature as it presents itself is an expression of Hashem in the world and that through the way that the clouds form, I'm having this argument with uh, my son Yeshua. So we looked at the weather forecast three days ago and I said, wow, it's going to rain this week. So he took the, the oppositional approach and said, these weather forecasters, they talk shtusim. So um, I challenged him and I said, well, let's wait and see. <laughs> I said, first of all, the, the prediction of rain is only 60, 60 to 70%, but let's see how good they are. And lo and behold, it rains. I kind of like pointed out, it's raining, buddy. And uh, he said, well, they just got right this time. But the lesson I was trying to teach him is that weather forecasters aren't prophets. They understand through watching the low and high air pressure zones and the global movement of, of, of air over the face of the earth from satellites, they can have quite good accuracy in terms of predicting what will be. Now, that's not, it's almost as if some people feel like it's not from to believe in the weather. Like, well, who are these people to tell, to tell God how to run his world? And that ironically is this very subtle form of, you know, you think it's emuna, but really it's kfira. You think it's, you think it's faith, but it's heresy. Because 
by not acknowledging that the world has patterns and there are meteorological factors which you can then deduce how things work, you are essentially saying that the way the world works is not God. And therefore you feel threatened by the fact that the person can predict the weather. But when you already internalize the idea that God communicates in two different languages, one, the language of nature, two, the language of Torah, and what we're constantly dealing with are those two languages, and our graduation is moving from nature to Torah, so then, of course, nature is, is, is works. But not because it works because it's nature. It works because that's what Hashem wants, and that's the way He's designed it. So ironically, when the weather forecaster understands what the predictable way that the clouds will move and then that will allow there to be rain even in the middle of May in Israel, which is extremely rare. So then he's just entreating the will of Hashem. And when he shares the information with others, he's just speaking about, as it were, that, what, what Hashem's saying to him. Now, how did he know that Hashem was saying those things to him? So then you have the combination of the ability to observe cause and effect and the mind that can process that cause and effect and draw the conclusions. So we already said that Hashem speaks to us in two ways. He speaks to us through his Torah and he speaks to us through his Teva. Both of those ways require an interface to derive the lesson. And the interface is called the Seichel. Ravolvi once told the story. Just one second. Of a student that was studying a Shiva Bocha, that was studying in uh, a Shiva Bocha that was studying in, um, I think it was, I think it was in the mirror, can't remember, in, back in Poland. And he, um, he asked Rabbi Yerucham, I can't remember if it could have been Slabotka in the Alt of Slabotka or Rebuchim in me. I wasn't sure. I can't remember which one it was. He said, I don't understand. When it comes to learning in shivers, the, the policy is quite radical. You know, it's, it's, it's a man only environment, and there's this notion that if a person has a woman cover, so it's going to be really distracting. But he said, You know, I see people going to university, serious students, and there's mixed classes, and, and they, learn, they, learn, they learn great. I mean, obviously, you're speaking about <laughs> the universities of those days. Things he might have changed. So he says, what's the difference? So the answer Rebuchim or the altar gave him was that science and Torah have one point of total overlap and another point of complete distinction. The point of overlap is they're both have a field, an area of focus from which they derive ideas and understandings. So, for example, science looks at the world and um, there's a phenomena of different forces. One of them is the force of gravity. And the way they pick it up is that when something is thrust into the air, it lands back on the ground. And from that experience in the physical world, they derive a principle and we'll call it the law of gravity. Um, they'll measure the speed at which objects fall and they'll come to the conclusion that there's a notion of final velocity, etc., etc., etc. They look at the world and from that world, they come up with a whole set of principles and those principles can then be applied in new areas. Um, you, can, you can create machines 
which work according to those principles, and you can create our world based on those principles. That, what science does to the physical world, the Torahship Alpeh does to the Torahship itself. It goes and studies and looks for nuances, and it derives concepts, and from an extra world of Asisim, Loikashe Zomam, all of a sudden, you see the parameters of this law become limited to a single generation, and it's not transgenerational. And subtly investigating every nuance in the text, we derive our process, and the logical cognitive apparatus that you need for science is the same one that you're using for Torah. And there's a sense of cause and effect, and a sense of synthesis, analysis, comparison, deduction, etc., etc., etc. So there's an absolute overlap. Where does the difference lie? Well, the difference lies in terms of where the area of focus is. In science, the area of focus is on the physical world, and in turn, on the spiritual world. And because of the origin of those two worlds, so the consequential experience of delving into science as opposed to delving into Torah is dramatic in our spiritual makeup. When a person delves into science, so then the level of the information that they're dealing with is couched in the disguise of the natural world. And if they're doing science for science's sake, not to find the presence of an ever-present creator, but they're learning science for science, and they're only seeing the natural aspect, that is in no way contradictory to sitting in a class with a girl, because that's also a natural experience. It's not an elevated, transcendent experience. Whereas when a person studies Torah, um, since the experience is focusing on the world of spirituality, there there needs to be a certain elevated person has to make sure his hands are clean, that he's dressed appropriately. In the times of Rabbi Gamliel, you couldn't learn Torah sitting down. You had to be standing up, etc., etc., etc. There's a certain approach that you have towards it. If the safer falls down, you kiss it because you have an awe, you have a respect. Very different, even though the process is a duplicate, but the consequences are dramatic. Now comes along Reb Yeruchim, and he says, but there's an even deeper distinction. Theoretically, a person could be involved in the study of science and it could take on not the same power, but the same direction as the study of Torah. Because when a person studies the world of nature, not to derive from it natural laws and leave it at that level of superficiality, but to engage in understanding, therefore, this is me trying to get out from this experience this natural phenomena, this interaction, this relationship, what Hashem is telling me through these things. So then the actual study of nature is elevated to a different plane as well. It becomes a completely different study of nature. And then it becomes much closer to Torah. And then the, the, the distinction between study of nature and study of Torah is no longer the same. It's now dramatically different. So now we have to then rethink. So what is the difference then? What is the difference between the study of Torah and the study of nature if both of them are just unveiling the will of Hashem in the world? Um, good. So that's where I think Zuzza starts to, to come into it. Zuzza starts to speak about the integration of supernature. And I'm going to read a pro- paragraph and let's see if we can make sense of it. This is at the end of chapter 6. The principle is as follows. Chizuk Godel Tzorich Adam Lizchazek Lizgaber Bezrizus. 
A person has to have a chizuk gadol. Chizuk gadol means I need to be um, have enormous amounts of an internal internal strength in order to strengthen myself and overcome resistance in resistance. Last is hamitzvahs to engage in the actual performance of mitzvahs. But hashlichoi may alav by casting off from me koived ha'atzlo, the weightiness of lethargy, hamakeves al yodoi, that prevents that from occurring. I'm just going to go a bit further, and then we'll stop and we'll reflect. Vatira, and now he says, now look at this. The Malachim. So a Malach is a, it's a little bit, I suppose, an analogy in the physical sense will be like a, um, a neuron that travels extremely quickly along neural pathways to give instructions to, say, our body to move. So when I would like to move my hand, there's a whole set of extremely rapid chemical reactions which transfer information from my brain all the way through my nerves to my muscles to my hand, and that's how I'm able to move my hand. So those transmitters are malachim. They are the conduits of carrying out my mental instructions to my, my body. So a malach is a mechanism of transmission. But it's a mechanism of transmission which doesn't have um, any will of its own. It doesn't have any internal resistance. In other words, there's, there's no, if a person's healthy and functioning, so if he issues an implicit mental instruction to move a limb in his body, um, there's no internal physiological resistance where the neurons may say, no. I'm actually not in for that right now. I'm going to, I'm going to just, I'm just going to stop that movement from happening. And you know, your hands are just going to stick on your lap. That's not going to happen because that would go against their fundamental design. So what these neural pathways are to our mind and body interrelationship, the malachim are to Hashem carrying out His will. It's like He's sending these conduits, and that's called a malach. Um, from the word malacha, which means a. a, a to make something happen. So says the Ramchal, that the Melochim are considered to be Zrizim. So Zrizus is an attribute which is used to describe Melochim. Because in regards to the Melochim, it says, Giboye Koyach, they have incredible power. They do his words. They hear the voice, the sound of his voice. And there's another verse which says, Mechayos, which is a category of Melachim, they go back and forth, running back and forth, like lightning. So this notion of this lightning speed transmission is something which is associated with Melachim. Now says the Ramchal, but a man is a man, he's not a malach. Meaning that what is a man ideally meant to be? He's actually meant to be like a malach. That Hashem would issue a command 
and like one of those neural transmitters, boom, to be done without any hesitation, without, without kind of rethinking, we're automatically going to action. But an Adam is an Adam, he's not a Malach. But that's his goal. It's impossible for him to get to that point. But what did he say? The closer he can get, he should go. That's appropriate. That's what David Amelech spoke about Zrizus. He said, I thought about it, and I didn't hesitate for a second to do your mitzvahs. So now, this is a crazy kind of conception of how we would interact with the performance of mitzvahs. Um, and you can see now why it's supernatural. Because the natural world doesn't support supernatural activity. It stops at a certain point. The natural world doesn't allow me to value in the way that it's manifest, for example, putting on trillion. There's nothing in terms of my, let me maybe just qualify it. What we've discovered in our previous sharing is that the natural world has really got two, two ways of, we have two ways of perceiving it. We have the unmodified perception of the natural world and we have the modified perception. The unmodified perception of the natural world is it's its own thing. It's like it's its own self-running machine that just keeps on going, and there's no real driver to this, to this track. It just is, it's on autopilot. And in that, what we would say, distorted perception, there's no place for God in that world. It's just natural world is a world which just functions, and its levels of cause and effect are bound within it. It's a closed system. And the reason why the crow eats carrion is because crows eat carrion. And the reason why um, plants grow from seeds is because there's decomposition and that's just the way it happens. There's no why. There's only a what. There's only a how. There's no why. And this is very much like the atheist view of the universe, that it's impossible. You know, um, Dawkins' uh, question to the chief rabbi, Sachs, was he counted him and said, you cannot ask why on nature. Nature is not a why. It's a, that's an inappropriate question to ask because the physical boundaries of nature are self-enclosed and that's it. But we, we challenge to transcendence. So the one way, of the other unmodified version of nature is nature is in open contradiction to spirituality. And that's the kind of nature that will oppose resource. That's the kind of nature that I experience my body only as a physical body. And I don't delve into where that physical body comes from and the energy that's generated constantly to keep it alive. I stop at a uh, unmodified, superficial perspective. In that unmodified perspective, that's where Atzlus triumphs. Because in that unmodified perspective, my body is only relating to my body, which means if it's tired, so therefore needs to rest because there's nothing underneath it. There's only the body. If it's hungry, it needs to eat. If it's self, um, 
and it needs to eat at all costs. That means if it means inconveniencing other people in any way, that's irrelevant because the body, which is a personification of a microcosm of the larger natural world, is an internal system that needs to function according to its needs. When we have a modified perspective of nature, so that's when things start to change. Instead of looking at my body as a self-constructed internal system, I look at my body as a subtle manifestation, a veiled manifestation of the Rosh Hashem. And in that view of my body, it completely transforms my relationship to it. In the unmodified perspective, my body is in itself the dictator of my relationship to it. Tired, sleep. Hungry, eat. In the modified perspective, my body is hinting to the will of Hashem and leaving signs and impression of the great designer that's energizing my life. Because that becomes a, if it's integrated, awareness that my body is not moving, it's being moved, that expands the closed system of body for body to body being manifestation of the higher will of Hashem. In that now open system, the system's opened up, so now the cause and effect becomes shifted. Because it's no longer body for body, but body for Hashem. Since I recognize that underneath the intricacies of my physical structure, there's divine design, so I recognize I am not my own creator, I'm a, cre I'm a creation of a creator, which means the energy that's pulsating through my system is not self-induced, but externally induced, which means there's a higher force which is transcendent, which means my obedience to my body is not to my body, but to that higher force, which then provides the accessibility, the movement to saying, and that higher force has also other desires. For example, tfilin, tzitzis, brachas, putting other people before myself. And that realization is a triumph over the body's loud voice saying, no, I'm here and I'm here only to represent my own physical manifestation. When a person transcends the unmodified perspective of the body, he unleashes the spirituality inside of himself. Now, I know there was a lot of complex and maybe convoluted sentences strung together, but that was just my shabby first draft of a concept I'm trying to express. And hopefully over the course of time, I'll be able to refine it so I can say it in simple language. It's quite bizarre, but um, describing an idea clearly for me involves the ability to first say it in a very complicated way, and then ultimately after saying it, in enough way, times complicated become simple, which is just a very interesting evolution of thought that when you understand something well, that's when the complexity starts to dissipate. Um, okay. Um, why is it different, says Aiden, to getting up for work when you're tired? Well, it's, it's different and it's the same. When you get up for work when you're tired, so then you're acknowledging that there's a a higher force than the simple demands of my body, but that higher force isn't the highest force. It's just a higher force. And the higher force ultimately could be a subsidiary set of something else in your body. So for example, if your intention to work is because you have, so you can have money. Intention to have money so you can buy yourself 
food and luxurious armchairs so you can sit down and do nothing. So then ultimately it's just, it's not transcendent. It's just bigger than the small little body, but it's not bigger than the body in its own right. Uh, but yes, but it's touching on the same thing. Over here, it's completely transcendent because it's got no relationship with the body at all. So it responds directly to the underlying energy manifest in the body of itself. Um, good. So just to reflect, the Ramchal says, um, another point, which I think is really interesting, that's implied in this Ramchal by comparing the middle of Zrisus to Malachim. One of the reasons which makes a Malach so incredibly efficient is the clarity that his mission is well-defined. A Malach doesn't hesitate to do what he's called on to do because the goal of what he's trying to achieve is absolutely clearly spelled out and categorical which implies that, as we stated last time, Zrizos is not only about efficient movement and focus and breaking the lethargy of the body, but it's an, it originates in extreme clarity of what in the world am I doing here and what my purpose is. And if that origin is not fully developed, meaning I'm doubtful whether... I'm ready here to chill and have a good time, or I'm ready here to connect spiritually to Hashem, if that is an ambiguous um, idea inside of my mind, well then, the efficient performance can never even get, it, get off the ground. Because, well, how can I do it fast? I, I, I don't even know if I should be doing it. So there's an incredible amount of clarity that's required as a building block for Zerizus to even come into being which again could bleed into the idea that before you have lamalim la teva, you need teva. Because the conviction of my devotion to mitzvahs is based on a very real, integrated understanding that Hashem is manifest in every molecule in the, creator, in the creation. Because that's, that's a clarity. When that clarity is present, well then I can have no doubt that I have to access that in a more sophisticated way through mitzvahs. Suggestion. Okay, we have, we have run out of time. Um, and I apologize for a rather truncated uh, series of sentences. Uh, but definitely a good first draft of a very complex point. And um, thank you for coming. Any questions?